0: With Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about, but we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to podsurvey, That's P O D S U R V E Y podsurvey.com slash James, and take a quick, totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher
1: Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show... I remember when I was in rehab, one of the first things one of the counselors said to me was, Rich, are you a human being having a spiritual experience, or are you a spiritual being having a human experience? And I was like, I don't fucking understand that question. (laughs) Like, can you repeat that? Like, I, you know, I still, and I think about that almost every single day, but I do believe that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience, that there are lots of things going on around us that we can't understand and perhaps could never understand because of the the size of our brains not being large enough or whatever it is and trusting in that and and kind of getting to this place of surrender versus self-will has been one of the most powerful and and helpful tools that has guided my life
0: got rich roll on the podcast rich how's it going good man so
1: happy to be back with you
0: yeah this is your I think this is like your third or fourth time on but it's been like a year and a half or two years it's been a while yeah it's been a long time and uh I kind of want to start from scratch a little bit for those who don't know you you're like uh I always think of you as a mega athlete which is basically how I describe anybody in sports who moves their body (laughs) so right but (laughs) but essentially I'm going to describe your story in a nutshell and then we could dive in a little bit and then I just want to ask you about some other things but um you you were a hardcore entertainment lawyer for many years uh, life was going badly you were practically having a heart attack while walking up the staircase you switched your diet we'll talk specifically how and then in a matter of weeks from that you were you were running like you were already an athlete and then I don't know you've run you've run what was it called like an ironman Type marathon around every island of Hawaii. You've done
1: all these amazing athletic things. Like, what are some of the? So, well, that's a very that's nutshell like version, very micro. I, I don't know that it really uh, unfolded in quite that dramatic fashion, but um, yes. Yeah, so, so to answer your first question about the the things that I've done, um, I specialize in like ultra endurance, um, multisport races. So, I've done this race a couple times called Ultraman, which is a double Ironman three day, 320 mile triathlon that circumnavigates the entire big island of Hawaii. So I did that a couple of times. I did this thing in 2010 called Epic Five, where a buddy and I did five Ironmans on five Hawaiian islands in under a week. So that was the other thing I'm kind of known for.
0: And uh, it seems like that's like a hard level of endurance to keep up. Like you're 46 years old right now?
1: No, I'm 51 now. Oh yeah, I knew that. Yeah,
0: you're you're older than me. Uh (laughs) So most of the time I have people younger than me on the podcast.
1: Uh, obviously, can you do this now? I just did a race in September. I hadn't raced for five years, and then I turned 50 last year, and I thought, well, it would be interesting to see what I could do as a 50-year-old. It seemed relevant and, and kind of um, a way to uh, promote a healthy message of like what a 50-year-old can do. So in September, I did this crazy race called uh, Otillo. It's a Swedish swim run event. I think they pronounce it something like Otillo. I think that's how they say it, which means island to island. And it it is a 75-kilometer one-day event that has you swimming and running across 26 islands spread wide across the Stockholm archipelago in the Baltic Sea. So, you're literally swimming across these channels and running up on these little islands and running across them and jumping back in the water, and you do that all day. It was like a a 10-and-a-half-hour race. And so, you did that at age 50? Yeah, I think I just, oh, it was just before I turned 51, Yeah. And I mean, this is a kind of naive question, but how'd you feel at the end? <laughs> <laughs> that was a very hard day. I mean, the, the conditions that day were insane. There was like sideways rain and and uh, gale force winds and the chop in the water was just unbelievable. So I think that was probably the most difficult one day event that I've ever done. It definitely brought me to my knees. I didn't have the greatest performance that day. I mean, I got through it, we did well.
0: I mean, just getting but, through it, by the way. I, I yeah. mean, to even complain it, about the performance, like I never was going to even ask you about the performance. Mm-hmm. Like just the fact that you did yeah, it's it. It's funny like I care but no one else cares. <laughs> like just saying that um you did this race, yeah, has anyone like okay, now I'm going to have to ask like how long did it take? <laughs> yeah, 10 and a, it was 10 hours and
1: 44 minutes or something like and that. And the winner, how long did he take? <laughs> they did it uh the, the interesting thing about this race is you do it as a tandem, as a pair. So you have a teammate that you have to stay within 10 meters of the entire time. Is and that for I, safety reasons? Uh, no, it's just, that's the nature of this event. Like you do it as a duo, which is kind of cool. And my teammate was my coach who could have been an hour and a half faster without me. I was definitely the limiting factor in our equation, but the fastest guys did it in about eight hours. So quite a bit faster. And they, these need like faster, Swedish really. armed forces guys that like, this is their job is to like train for this race. Right, so what I view that,
0: when I hear that, I think, Someone in the armed forces, younger in their peak physical condition, who also knows the terrain probably pretty well. He probably trained. They probably trained on that exact they terrain. Did. That's exactly right. And they only did it two hours faster than you, who you're 51 and didn't train on that
1: terrain as probably as much as them and that seems incredible to me well you make me feel a lot better about myself because i look at that and i go i can't believe those guys were two hours faster how did they do that
0: how come how come okay let's explore that for a second how come you feel bad about that that's an interesting question i'm just gonna guess they're 25 years old and they really are in like peak physical condition and they probably like do marathon after marathon and they're used to that environment terrain everything like of course they're gonna win right but then two hours is only you know, in a 10 hour, 10 and a half is only 20% better than you. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, that I'm fine with them being faster. I'm not, I'm not bummed out about that. I think I would have not had that emotional reaction had I felt like I had my best day out there. It's only because I feel like I, I could have done better. Like I didn't sleep well. I didn't feel good. That There's a whole battery of reasons why I feel like I didn't have my best performance that day. So it's more about, it's more about that than it is about the fact that, 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 uh, there are other guys that were faster but
0: even but even taking that into account then, so you didn't sleep well the day before you you weren't feeling well and you still managed to finish only only two hours behind them on a ten and a half hour race uh and you weren't feel, and by the way you had pneumonia <laughs> or whatever <laughs> no, it was yeah. so like i should have you just talking into my ear all the time <laughs> i
1: feel better about myself
0: well why, why again why um you know you you gave you, all the excuses aside, which kind of even makes it more amazing. Why would you feel, I mean, here you set yourself this challenge, which is, okay, I'm 50. Let's see if I can still do something that's ultra endurance just to see if it's possible. And you did it. And you did it in within striking distance of people in peak condition uh, maybe 25 years younger. Why would you feel, I mean, I guess you would feel bad if you felt like, I don't know. I don't know why you would feel bad.
1: I mean, it's not, it's like I said, it's not that I feel bad. It's just that I feel like I could have done better, right? And so to not acquit myself, you know, as well as I know that I'm capable of just makes it feel like there's a little bit of unfinished business. That's all. It's not like I walk around staring at my toes or anything. But like, do you think, when was the last big race you had done before then? 2011 um, was an Ultraman race. And that was a race that didn't go well. And I, I didn't, I had to pull out. In the middle of it um and i definitely didn't want my athletic career to end that way
0: right so so that's understandable so that but there was then like a three or four year difference between these two races Mm -hmm. which again those guys probably had been in a race the week before for all we know
1: um why did you have to pull out of the 2011 race uh, I started spitting up blood, and I had like a low-grade respiratory infection. So it's a three—that is a three-day race. So after the first day, you know, I I knew something was wrong, and I started the second day thinking, well, I'll be fine. And then I realized, you know, a couple hours into that second day, like I, I was going to have to pull out. Like it just—I wasn't healthy. So it was just—it was, you know, if you're if you're going to be pushing your body that hard for that amount of time. Uh, even the sl- you know if you're just off in the slightest bit, like that compounds itself. So just even having like a low grade respiratory infection that perhaps if you're just walking around you wouldn't necessarily even notice. Not something that would keep you home from work or anything like that. Um, that can be you know pretty debilitating in a race like that. So that just caught up to me, and that's why I didn't finish that race.
0: So I want I want to talk uh, about health because obviously you've you've managed to kind of almost reverse the, the direction your health was going to be able to achieve these incredible things. But also the fact that you're like, I'm going to hit 50 years old in, let's say it's December now. So in January, I'm going to hit uh-huh. 50. And for some reason, 40, I didn't mind. I was actually kind of, I, I was definitely happy with 30. I was okay with 40. I figured like 30 and 40 were sort of like, okay, now these are different notches where people take you seriously in different ways. But 50, I actually
1: feel bad about. (laughs) You feel bad? Why do you feel bad about
0: it? I don't know. I mean, I have a kind of a, I'm I'm, I'm certainly, I feel comfortable where I am in life. At 50, I have no complaints, no problems. But I don't know. I feel like 50, I've always, I'm used for many years, for decades, I was the youngest person in the room. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like now often the oldest person in the room. And 50 sort of underlines that like, there's just. Not only are you middle-aged, but you're kind of getting to be old (laughs) at 50.
1: Well, also we're and I pl- feel young. I feel yeah, youthful. In, and you have youthful energy and and we're both playing a young man's game. Like being a podcaster and kind of being a, a personality on the internet and all the things that you do is typically the purview of people that are in their mid to late twenties, early thirties, right? So, like so most of my 50 year old friends, like they're not even like they don't they have no idea what I'm doing. Like it's just not part of their universe. But maybe there's something wrong with us. Like why is know. it why yeah, is it, it important for us? But the 50? thing is, I would imagine Why can't you, we relax? You, you're probably <laughs> spending a lot of time with a a lot of people much younger than you yeah is that true yeah because i do i know that i do and it makes me feel young and i sort of look at them and i think i'm their age and i have to remind myself like oh man like i could actually be that guy's dad
0: no i remember i was even talking to somebody who had just come from a conference that was organized by other people i knew and he he was a very young guy and he was like oh it was like just a bunch of old people talking about investments And I was like, well, let's do a young person version of it. And then I realized as I was saying it, (laughs) the people who would organize that conference were were 10 years younger than me. (laughs) So what was I talking about? Uh, I felt like foolish instantly. But, you know, it's true. I hang out. uh, I mean, I hang out. with. Look, we're hanging out. We're... we're similar age uh-huh. but maybe
1: we should relax more maybe you shouldn't be running around for 10 and a half hours in stockholm <laughs> i don't know i don't know what i should be doing but i think you know to 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 your point about feeling weird about turning 50 you know it's natural it's like it's a it's a milestone that's gonna um you know trigger you to reflect on on you know your path to date and what lies forward so i think part of that is healthy um maybe the feeling bad part about it is something to look at i mean i i felt like great about turning 50 because i went through that at 40 like i kind of had because i i was not happy with how i was living you know now i'm really happy i'm excited to get up every day and do what i do and so like that milestone doesn't mean as much to me as it did when i turned 40 and i thought what am i doing with my life because that was kind of the turning point in which i started to address all these things that have led me to here
0: well well you know and it's funny like uh i don't know as your diet changed in the past so i last saw you about guess about uh, a little over a year and a half ago uh, you look actually healthier now than then <laughs> i don't know as your diet changed much well, th- and th- you're
1: healthy then <laughs> i think i'm uh, i've been training a little bit more cuz i just did this race in september so i'm more probably more fit than i was when you saw me last um uh, my diet continues to get refined and improved but you know for the listeners out there you know, I changed my diet at 40 to a plant-based diet. That like, re-energized me and gave me this you know, resurgence of vitality that led me into becoming an athlete. Once again, I'd been an athlete in college and then to go off and do all these things that we discussed. Um, and to this day, I continue to tinker with it and refine it. I'm still 100% plant-based and you know, still 100% vegan. But during that five-year period in which I didn't race, I was trying to figure out how to transition from being a corporate lawyer into you know being someone like yourself who 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 makes a living on the internet like spreading a healthy message you know and I've done that through books like yourself and through the podcast but for me it took a long time to um, create a stable revenue stream out of all of, all of this and 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 so there were some pretty lean years some pretty scary years in there and so I just wasn't I wasn't racing during that period of time so I continued to stay fit and go out and do stuff but I wasn't like razor sharp like I had to be in September
0: so so let's Let's talk about that time when you were 40 for a little bit. So you were a lawyer. Uh, what was going on? What was going
1: on in your life? So at 40, I was practicing law. I had been at big corporate law firms for many years. Uh, went to law school at Cornell. I think we might have even overlapped uh, and been there at the same time. and had spent time in firm in a firm in San Francisco and then Los Angeles. Ultimately realized uh, that, you know, well, in the midst of all of that, to kind of further contextualize it, I had a struggle with drugs and alcohol uh, that took me to some pretty dark places. I almost lost my entire career. It was very bad. What was the, Ended up, it's a cliche to ask, but what was mm-hmm. the What was the lowest point of that? Like, I don't know if we ever discussed you almost mm. losing your career. The, uh, the lowest point preceded me actually getting sober for a while, but the lowest point was I had a wedding In which i was purportedly getting married to a woman and uh and she didn't want to sign the marriage certificate and that wedding ended on the honeymoon when i sent her home and i've never seen her since and that was like 1997 or something like that when
0: when she didn't want to why what did she say when she didn't want to sign the marriage certificate
1: oh that's a two-hour conversation in order to fully understand how i how how this all unfolded but suffice the, the the sort of point behind it is she realized that she didn't wanna get married to me. And although I was trying to stay sober at that time, she had this epiphany that she probably didn't wanna be married to an alcoholic. Mm. Uh, And I certainly can't fault her for that. And I think she wasn't courageous enough to call off the wedding because it was like a train that had pulled out of the station and this thing was happening. And so her way of, I I think by not signing the marriage certificate, she was trying to compel me to call it off for her because she didn't have the strength to do that. And then I allowed that to transpire unbeknownst to anybody who was attending this wedding and the 13 groomsmen that I had and everybody that I loved present for this ceremony, uh, only to go on a honeymoon in which she barely spoke to me and it was just the weirdest thing ever. And I ultimately ended up telling her that she needed to go home and that wedding ended at that point. I mean, that marriage ended at that point. And that was a very, although I was trying to stay sober at that time, when that happened it was so emotionally devastating to me that like i had to drink
0: and like that night after she left you're still at the honeymoon location yeah i'm
1: in jamaica what at did a hotel you do? Room. the first thing i did was called room service and had them bring over a 12 pack of red stripe beer and i just got annihilated just by yourself yeah and then did you go out and i the was town? there for like a couple more days and i just was drunk around the clock and then had to like slink my way back home and. Try to put the pieces back together. And nobody that I knew knew what had happened. Like everybody thought that we were returning from this honeymoon happy. So every single I person start, you
0: spoke to, you had to basically say, We're not, I'm not is, married. We're not, what, she left. Yeah, and... Exactly.
1: Exactly. How did people react? It was, it was terrible. I mean, you know, people were, they felt terrible for me. Um, but it was devastating for me emotionally that something like that could happen. And so uh, I had to drink because I didn't have the, emotional capacity to weather that any other way at that time and I was so in so much pain over that that it was probably I think it was like another year or so at least before I kind of hit my bottom and ended up in rehab so so I don't even know how you would get the emotional
0: capacity to deal with that like what how how does one deal with that in retrospect like how other than of course not drinking how could you have dealt with that I think by like assuming you were in love with her and you wanted to get married to her.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought that I was in love with her at the time and it's one of those things, James, where you look back on it and you're like, this is the best thing that ever happened to me because it wasn't the right thing. And she probably was in her own handicapped way, you know, was making a good decision for herself and for me. Of course, I couldn't see that at that time. Um, and, uh, and and I'm grateful to her now that this is how it played out because it sort of set in motion all these things that allow me to be who I am now. But I think it, you know a healthier way of dealing with that at the time would have been to go to therapy, to rely on the people that, that you love, to confide in the people that you trust and allow them in to help you. And I was somebody who, walked around with this armor on thinking i can solve all my problems you know through my self-will and i don't need anybody's help and just leave me alone and i was very much an island in that regard
0: and how old were you then 30
1: 31. because i found that
0: much later when i was much older i went through something similar and we've even briefly talked about it offline like uh, when we last saw each other but uh i found i like you i was not very comfortable with asking people for help but sometimes you just need to. Mm-hmm. That's you know it's, it's why humans live in a community, and 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 the, the healthiest and longest living humans often live in strong communities. And I found once I did start asking people for help, like people who were my friends, or even people who, I, who who wanted to be my friends, but I had not quite let in. Mm-hmm. People were very eager to help. They wanted. It was like a gift I was giving them. It almost felt like that they could help me because I had never really asked for this kind of emotional help before
1: and it's scary to ask for help and it's a very vulnerable feeling and I think as men at least well at least speaking for myself I was not comfortable with being vulnerable in that way I was always trying to carry myself as somebody who could figure things out and had the answers and I think you know we all have some kind of psychic or emotional pain and you know, to repress that or to pretend that it doesn't exist or to act like it will just go away uh, is ultimately not a great strategy. It will somehow manifest itself in Aaron's behavior patterns or in other kinds of distress that will show up in your life later, eventually, like inevitably.
0: Well, and and I think that those other kinds of behavior that show up afterwards, I'm just making the analogy to when when something similar happened to me, is that it was almost like a big blind spot for me in that i thought like oh i asked for help people are helping me and i'm done i've dealt with this uh-huh. it's great and i didn't really realize the trauma of what had happened probably for another year and a half to two years that i oh this entire time i had been going through trauma and for all i know i still am but uh, at least then i was and i didn't know where i wasn't aware of it it was like a, this huge blind spot and other people I think was, were sort of able to see it, but I wasn't able to see it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess what I'm leading to is that what you think might be a bottom, then later on there's a much deeper and more meaningful rock bottom. And so you alluded to like a year and a
1: half later, there was some rock bottom for you. Like what happened then? Well, my drinking just continued to escalate and the drama that I was inviting into my life, like uh, you know, escalated accordingly. I got you know, two DUIs like in a matter of weeks of each other. In Los Angeles, where you know the cops don't mess around in L.A. If you get pulled over for for DUI, and you know I the first one I rear-ended an elderly woman at a busy intersection at like three in the morning and blew a point two nine, which is very drunk, and then a couple of weeks later driving down the the wrong the wrong way down a one-way street in Beverly Hills, pulled over point two seven, and the arresting officer in on that occasion. Um, when he, when he arrested me, he, he sort of took my wallet and he saw my business card and he knew my boss, the senior partner at the law firm where I was working, who represented the Beverly Hills PD and the LAPD and all these excessive force cases. So he called my boss and said, I picked up one of your boys. So Monday morning after I'd spent you know a, a night in jail and kind of came back into the office, uh, he called me into my in, into his office and he like knew the whole thing he knew everything that was going on. So that was the first moment in which this private secret life that I was living had suddenly become uh, something that you know my employer was aware of and that was very frightening for me. I was facing jail time I was it's a long story, but I was able to avoid having to go to jail for that which was a, like a miracle um, And then just you know beyond that it wasn't that, There was a lot of crazy stories. It was just this progressive sense of desperation um, and loneliness uh, that became unbearable, that the only solution for me was either to, you know, end my life or face the inevitable sort of process of trying to get sober which i never thought i was would able to would be able to achieve
0: and did your did your so you call on monday morning did your
1: boss sort of start pushing you in that direction was he kind about it or he was forthright and direct he just said look your personal life is not in my business i would prefer not to have to get into it but you know i got an interesting phone call the other day i know what's going on i know you're in deep shit. uh here's a lawyer i want you to call and I want you to take this seriously, and I don't wanna hear about it anymore. So he basically like said, take care of it. And as long as you take care of it, I'm cool. And I need to know, we were, we, I was second chairing a, a big trial that was coming up that he was litigating. And he's like, I need to know that you're gonna be able to show up for me. And that was it. And then he never said anything about it again. And of course I hired this lawyer who was like way out of my price range. I couldn't afford him. And, uh, and went through the, you know, the legal process of trying to you know, unravel that knot. Um, and again, these things didn't all take place in, in rapid fire. This played out over you know, a couple of years. Is that stressful? Yeah, it was stressful. It was stressful. It was just, I just felt very alone. You know? And again, it goes back to that, that, that kind of sensibility of not wanting to ask for help. And I was so ashamed of my behavior because James, like, like yourself, like I was somebody who was a young person um, was kind of heralded as somebody with a lot of promise. Like I got into all these great colleges. I got to go to a great college. I got into a great law school. I, You know, I could get the good job. I could do all these things. And people were always like, I felt this, I shouldered this sense of pressure and expectation that I would be this certain kind of person. And I was investing a lot of time and energy, all of my time and energy in trying to live up to that. And what I wasn't aware of at the time and what a ton of therapy and sobriety have have showed me is that you know, I was trying to force this round peg into a square hole for most of my life because I never took took the time to stop and say, "Well, let's get off this, you know, train to the American dream and and really reflect on you know who you are and and what do you want to express in your life? Like that was just never part of the conversation or the equation for me. And I think on some level, like I don't know why I'm an alcoholic. I just know that I am, but i have I have to imagine that 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 kind of dissonance contributed to a lot of my drinking and using because I had so much discomfort about how I was living my life. And that was a way to like numb or ease that pain. Because the original question you had was like, you know, what was going on at 40? So that it was, I was having this crazy existential crisis, um, even though, I mean, I got sober at 31 at 40, you know, I, I, I'm i jumping ahead, but um, after I got out of rehab, it was all about like repairing this broken life. and and just getting back on track and you know riding that train to the American dream without that self-reflection because then the the rehab
0: I, I guess sobers you up right then but I know many people who go to rehab and then they're okay for a few months and they're back in rehab and they're okay for a few months so there's the rehab which sobers you up right then and then you have to kind of deal with what was causing the hole that you were trying to fill so when did you, I mean, it's a big leap. Like you say, you're on this train to the American dream. It's hard to jump off of a moving train. Mm-hmm. And you, and like you said, you had already invested both psychologically and financially and physically so much into your career. It's hard to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to jump off this train and land on my two feet mm-hmm. and walk in a different direction.
1: Like, how did you say, decide, okay, I'm walking in and, and quitting my job today? I mean it was it was like a 12 year process of how this kind of unfolded unfolded but essentially what happened was yes you're exactly right like you get out of rehab you know what people what a lot of people don't realize who aren't familiar with addiction and and, and alcoholism is that the drugs and the alcohol are like the solution to the problem they're not the problem until later initially they're the solution and so when you remove those Yes, you have deleted that aspect of your behavior that's causing problems, but you're left with all of these, um, all of these emotions that, and, and all of this sort of emotional immaturity that ne- then needs to get tended to. And if you don't tend to it, you're either gonna relapse or you're gonna start doing other crazy stuff that's gonna screw up your life. So for me, I immersed myself in the recovery community in Los Angeles and sobriety became my number one priority. And, and with that, you know, I started to put the pieces back together in my life and, and to the point where I could, you know, be looked at as a responsible member of society. And was able to you know, create bonds with my family again and my friends and all of that. And that took like a good 10 years.
0: Well, why was, were the bonds with your family?
1: Uh, well, at the end, they, they were done with me. They were like, you know, if you wanna get sober, call us, but until then, like, we don't wanna hear from you. Because we were I negative was so, things. Uh, no, it was just, I was so, they were just so terrified, mm. you know, because they knew how bad the problem was mm. and they couldn't understand why I couldn't or wouldn't get sober. And so, so uh,
0: did you immerse yourself in the sober community because, as partly as a legal strategy to avoid the jail time for DUI? No, no,
1: that had that had been sorted out. Um, it wasn't. No, it was just I knew that I needed I needed to learn. I needed tools to live. Like I needed a whole new toolbox for how to approach my life. Um, a to stay sober and B to grow into the emotionally mature person that I felt like I could be. Right, and so. Twelve Steps, you know, has taught me that, and I've learned tools in that program that I use every single day in every aspect of my life. Like, like what we use today. Today, uh, practicing gratitude, doing a gratitude list every day, understanding that you know I'm not in control. I'm not in control of James Altucher and the questions that he's going to ask me. I'm not no, in no, control of people, places, and things. Understanding that there is a God of my own design and a power greater than myself that I can turn my emotional discontentedness and problems over to. What does it mean, God of your own design? Well, you know, 12-step is, they say it's a spiritual program. It's not a religious program, but it is essentially faith-based. And with that, uh, you know, one of the kind of primers is that you come to understand that there's a power greater than yourself, and you get to decide what that is. It could just be like if you, you know, if you don't believe in God, then you can come to an understanding that the 20 or 50 or 100 people in that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous has more answers about how to stay sober than you do because of their collective experience, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be a power greater than yourself. You get to decide that for yourself. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I was in rehab, one of the first things one of the counselors said to me was, Rich, are you a human being having a spiritual experience or are you a spiritual being having a human experience? And I was like, I don't fucking understand that question. <laughs> like, can you repeat that? Like, I, you know, I still, and I think about that almost every single day, but I do believe that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience, that there are lots of things going on around us that we can't understand and perhaps could never understand because of the, the size of our brains not being large enough or whatever it is. And trusting in that and and kind of getting to this place of, surrender versus self-will has been one of the most powerful and and helpful tools that has guided my life.
0: And if you think about it, it's a very complicated tool because on the one hand, you're you and you want to be the best you and, and that's important. And you wake up thinking, what can I do today to improve myself, improve the world, improve my family and relationships? So there's a significance to your decisions, but at the same time, it's also coming to grips with the kind of insignificance of you have that small brain, you can't control everything, you can't you can't know everything, you can't do everything you would, could possibly want to do. Um, you know, understanding that you know in a in a hundred years, no one's going to remember who you are. So it's kind of this dichotomy that we have to live with each day. I think, um, and both feel good. Like surrendering to that notion of insignificance feels good, but also doing something significant.
1: Feels good. Right. It's that adage of, of focusing on the things that you can control and relinquishing the things that you can't. And, you know, I know for myself and, and probably for a lot of your listeners, the idea of surrender is like anathema, right? You, you, you have a lot of type A personality people <laughs> that listen to this show, entrepreneurs and the like. And that was the case with myself as well. Like my whole life, looking back on it, I thought that everything that I had achieved, whether it was getting into Stanford or becoming this swimmer at Stanford or getting into law school or getting whatever job that I got was a result of not divine providence, but because of my work ethic. Like I never considered myself to be the smartest or the most talented athletically or academically, but I knew how to work really hard. And I knew I could bridge that talent deficit gap by going the extra mile. And I'd always prided myself on that like, capacious ability to like outwork the next person. And so this was my rule book, like just outwork the next guy, show up earlier, work later, you know, swim more miles, whatever it is. And I was gonna take that recipe, you know, to the grave and apply that to everything in my life. And I realized with with alcoholism, that doesn't work. Like I tried to solve it my own way without 12 step or letting anybody in or telling anybody what was going on or asking for help. And the more I relied on my self will with respect to that problem, the deeper I dug that hole. And so I was forced through pain into a place of submission where I had no other choice than to surrender, than to let go. And at that time, I equated that with failure. Surrender is failure. You're waving the white flag, you're giving up. Like that's not part of my composition. That's not part of my DNA. But what I've come to realize and really embrace is that A, it takes strength to surrender and that by being in that place of surrender, um, like that doesn't mean you don't, you're don't you lazy or you don't do work, but by being in that place of surrender, um, you can really embody a sense of humility that removes the negative aspects of the ego and allows you to show up not just for yourself, but for other people in the best way possible.
0: Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I would say doing a podcast is the activity that I've enjoyed most in these past few years. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast and it will really show people in general, that this is a quality show and then it's worth listening to. You can also check out the show notes at com slash podcast. And also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at com. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys. I feel there's obviously nuances to the word surrender, right? So so what do you, what does it mean when you, what do you feel internally when, when, when you're, when there's a situation you're encountering and you're saying like, you know what, the best strategy here,
1: or maybe you don't think of it so tactically, but this is, this is a point where I'm surrendering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you're in a conflict with somebody and you have that impulse, like you wanna fire off that email and resolve it because it makes you so uncomfortable or I need to call this other person, I need to address it and sometimes, The solution is to do nothing, you know, to wait, to Mm. pause when agitated, and to uh, revisit it in 24 hours. And in a certain respect, I think that's like a a, a micro example of surrender. I think that probably happens every day. Yeah, of course. Like, and that's just that's also just practicing mindfulness too. Mm. I think, in a more macro sense, when I look at my life. I'm not sitting here with you doing a podcast and getting to travel all over the world and give talks and sell books and doing all that. like like I'm clear enough now to realize like that is not the result of my my ego and myself well, that there is something else at play that has provided me with these amazing opportunities in my life. And that makes room for me for gratitude. Like I understand, and I believe that there's that there's more going on so
0: so, So when did that, when did that happen? So, so obviously when you were a lawyer, you had a goal, which was, I'm going to be a bigger and bigger lawyer. I'm going to make more and more money. I'm going to make partner and senior partner, or maybe you had a goal. You were going to eventually be the chief legal officer for some big company, uh, and make a lot of money that way. Um, and you kind of, at some point decided, okay, that's not, it's definitely not going to happen. I'm going to quit this and Do something else. Mm -hmm. Like, what was that moment? Well, it
1: happened in a couple stages. I mean, when I got out of rehab, I went back to the law firm where I was working, and I knew, you know, I I developed enough awareness to understand that I was pursuing the wrong career path, Um, but I was too afraid of stepping outside of it because I had no idea what else I would do with my life. So I went back and worked at this law firm for like a year, and. You know, is a high power high powered place, Century City law firm, the whole thing, working on crazy cases. I worked with like Robert Shapiro, the OJ lawyer. I was second chairing a trial with him, like doing some interesting stuff for that occupation. But just looking around at all the the partners, I just I I just didn't aspire to have any of their lives. Like some of them loved it, and that's great. And I just realized like there's no way that I could will myself into that place of loving it the way that these people do. And and
0: I think that by the way, that's a good test. Of things, if 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 all the people who are kind of superior to you, whether you are at a graduate school and these are professors, or you're at a job and these are your bosses, or you're at, in an industry and these are the heroes of the industry, if you don't actually want to be them, mm-hmm. it's probably not going to be the case that you could do enough different things. If you if you stay in the same industry and job, it's probably not going to be the case that you could veer that much further away from the heroes of that industry. And you're probably never going
1: to be very good at it. that's probably true because those are the best yeah so having that awareness or that understanding is different from doing anything about it like i said i'd been on this train for so long and the idea that i would step off and do something else like i I just was so out of my programming like my whole life i was just in that lane you know um how could you even entertain the thought of doing something else that's what i want to know i know but i always hear stories of like like like, you just had Dennis Woodside on your podcast. And and as we were saying before the podcast, like, I've known that guy for a long time. Like, we were summer associates at a law firm um, when we were young. And, and he's a guy who could look around and say, okay, I could do this, but, you know, I see more opportunity over here, and I'm just going to move. And didn't seem to have any hesitation or, like, emotional baggage around it.
0: It wasn't like he was jumping off the train. He just, the train was... Uh, he got on a connecting train. Yeah, I guess he's like, so. He's like the legal guy or the COO of Dropbox. Right. So uh, that, that's more of a connecting train than jumping off the train.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, here's how it played out. Like, I literally reached the point where I was so burned out and incapable of doing this work. It was so at odds with this person that I was kind of growing into that... One day, I was like, I, gotta, I, I was staring at my computer, and all I had to do was type a confirming letter, like, okay, this deposition is going to be on this date, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I couldn't do it. I was like, I can't even hit the keyboard with my finger. Like, I'm done. And I went into my boss's office, the same boss who, you know, had found out about the DUIs and also was very supportive when I went to rehab. Like, he kind of had my back. Like, he's a super hard nosed, like, very tenacious litigator, but he always kind of protected me because I was kind of his boy. And I just said, look, I gotta quit. Like I can't do this anymore. Like I just, I can't do the job. Like I don't even feel right about you paying me to do this because you're not getting any value out of me. And I don't have, I don't have a plan. I'm not going across the street for more money. Like I, I, I don't even know what I'm gonna do, but I just know I can't, I just can't keep showing up here anymore.
0: If you were to give advice now to someone in that position who who has no idea what to do next, what would
1: you, what would you say? I mean, I wouldn't recommend that they do what I did. I just felt like there was no other option for me. And I literally had zero plan and I had enough money to last me maybe two months. That was it and, and no idea what would follow. Like I thought maybe I'll just go home and live with my mom. Like I, you know, I literally didn't know what to do. And so I, I don't know that, that that's advice I would give to somebody else. But I do think that there is something powerful about taking a leap of faith on some level I think it would be advisable to have a bit of a plan or a sensibility about what you're going to do once you take that leap which I did not have but I think you know trying to stridle stride you know have your foot in one world and in the other and hoping for the best that both are going to work out I don't in my experience I don't think is a great strategy either you know I think on some level you have to take a leap of faith whether it's micro or macro and in my case it was very it was very macro and it was scary but what happened in the wake of that was suddenly, you know, a week later, my phone rang with this screenwriter or this independent film producer who needed me to look at a contract. And before I knew it, I was um, kind of cobbled together this solo practice, uh, solo law firm practice. And so I did that in various capacities for a number of years. So I kind of was de escalating out of being a lawyer without totally cutting the cord but going from the big corporate job into a more self-styled situation in which I had more control over my time, soothed that wound and allowed me to perpetuate the continuation of being a lawyer without completely, you know, cutting cutting that off completely. Um, and maybe I protracted uh, how long I was a lawyer. Because that you could have done forever. Like, that yeah. sounds like you make your own and, hours. And I might have, you know, I might have. And when I, when I had that, you know, epiphany at 40 and the staircase incident and began training for these races. I was still practicing law as a solo practitioner. I wasn't making very much money and I was becoming less and less interested in it, but it allowed me domain over how I spent my time to invest myself in other things that were becoming more interesting to me. Like what? Like the training for these races uh, and, uh, and, and the amount of time that that took. Like I, I would go out and, on these like eight, nine-hour training bike rides, and on a weekday and my phone would ring and it'd be like, you know, I have to like pull over and like negotiate a deal. And I would think like hey, these guys are in Beverly Hills or at a studio, like if they had any idea what I was doing right now, you know, and this was before it was kind of acceptable for everybody to be a freelancer. Um, so it took a long time for me to kind of own, you know, this other life that I was starting to, you know, pursue. But then, you know, it, it's such a pleasure to switch gradually,
0: whether it's gradually or fast or whatever, into things that you love doing. So you're on, so here, instead of being all day in the office, suddenly you're able to make a living, you're still doing the work that you were trained for, but you're on a bicycle eight hours a day or doing some kind of training. Like that must have felt
1: good. Yeah, it definitely felt good. Because A, your body's gonna feel better. Mm -hmm. And your mind was probably like, oh, I get to do this. Yeah, it was a relief because It wasn't just, I mean, first of all, I wasn't riding eight hours on my bike every day, but I I was starting to train every day. And because I could control my time, I could designate when to do that every day. And and that meant, you know, I'd work really late at night sometimes or work super early in the morning. Um, But it wasn't just that I was like doing this physical training, like it was reconnecting with something that really made me happy, you know? It made me happy as a kid. Like I'd forgotten I was a swimmer as a child and how, how much joy that brought into my life. And as an adult growing older, it's sort of like, well, that's what kids do. And Now you have to do this, you got to ride elevators every day and like wear suits and stuff. And you can't really embrace that aspect of what made you happy as a younger person. And so I was revisiting that and it really reconnected me with a big part of like who I am. So it was it was self-discovery, but it was also like a journey backwards into connecting with, you know, kind of who I am really as a person.
0: I always I always tell people, try to list The things you were interested in from ages 6 to 14 because there's a lot of clues in there as to what you want to do because there is a big disconnect once you go to college like okay now i've got to start doing this i can't obviously i can't be superman and i (laughs) love superman (laughs) comics then but sometimes things age you know so like maybe you can't be a superhero because that's impossible but maybe you could tell stories or draw comics or be an athlete or whatever. Like I think it's, it's great advice. There's a know? lot of ways things age that we don't think about until we put it down on paper and start thinking
1: about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're sort of taught that you know those are the purview of of juveniles, you know. But in truth, if if it makes you happy, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it um you know my my recommendation is always that you find some way to embrace those things even if they seem silly or you're embarrassed to admit it out loud it doesn't mean that you're going to walk out of your job and pursue it as a full-time career but to find ways to build that into your daily existence i think is really powerful and so so
0: talk about the the staircase incident even though we you know i find we we've talked about this before but we didn't really have this Mm buildup to it before so uh, it puts it in a different context
1: Right. So what happened was uh, from 31 to 40, I'm on this, you know, lawyer track that we were talking about, you know, trying to rebuild my life, repair the wreckage of my past, become successful. And by the time I'm 39-40, I'd achieved these things. Like I met my wife, who you know, and, and we built this amazing home that we still live in today. I had a fancy sports car in the driveway. I had like all the cool stuff. Like if you were on the outside looking in, you're like, this guy's got like a really good life. And on paper, I did, but on the inside, I felt like I was dying. Like I was depressed. Um, I was unenthusiastic about my life because I knew I was in a career that was ill-suited to me. But I just couldn't see my way out of it. And what I only now kind of really understand in retrospect is that, despite being very diligent in in my sobriety and maintaining, you know, maintaining that, um, I had transferred a lot of my addictive alcoholic tendencies onto like lifestyle habits and food habits. So I was a total junk food addict three day you know three times a day, you know the drive-throughs and the, the Chinese food at the law firm and all that kind of stuff, not exercising, not taking care of myself, you know working ridiculous hours, not sleeping, just just not taking care of myself. So I have this existential crisis on the one hand, and i have this brewing kind of like poor health and both of these things are kind of percolating and are they, they connected you think like if you're having think, the existential crisis are you going to eat like crap yeah of course of course, like I don't feel good about myself. I'm not happy in my life. I'm not happy with the career that I'm pursuing. I'm confused about what's next. I'm uncomfortable in my own skin. So what do I do? Like, I'll go to, you know, I'll go to McDonald's and just numb that out. Like you can use food just like you use alcohol. And that was something that took me a long time to really realize about my own behavior. So I can't, I can't drink anymore, I can't do drugs. Well, yeah, but I can go eat French fries or I can eat pie or whatever.
0: Were you you overweight?
1: Yeah, so I was about 50 pounds overweight. Do you have a picture? Um, I do, I can show you afterwards. I was never like morbidly obese guy, Mm. Uh, but yeah, like I look like a hefty guy who like works in a law firm and is riding elevators up and down, you know, and not going running or anything like that. And. Shortly before my 40th birthday, these, this existential crisis and this, this sort of poor health collided in this perfect storm where I was walking up a simple flight of stairs to go to bed late one night after a long day at work. And I had to stop, like I couldn't, I had to stop and take a breather like up a simple flight of stairs. I was like wheezing, um, sweat on my brow, like buckled over and a, and, a, and a really distinct like tightness in the center of my chest. And it, it, it really scared me, I thought, you know, I'm 39, like I shouldn't have chest pains. Um, I still thought of myself as that like Stanford swimmer, even though I didn't look anything like that anymore, which is kind of how denial works. Um, And heart disease runs in my family. My grandfather had been a champion swimmer in the 1920s and 1930s, died of a heart attack at a very young age, despite like never smoking or never being overweight. And my mom was always like, you gotta eat right, you gotta watch out, like this happens in our family and it's like blah, blah, blah when you're young. But you know, in that moment, it finally all kind of like dawned on me and I realized like, I need to change how I'm living. Like this is, I am not okay with this. And it was a very specific, distinct episode that in many ways is very reminiscent of the day I decided to go to rehab. It was like a bottom, you know, where suddenly, your denial is snapped and you have a willingness to take a different tack and ask others for help and kind of surrender it was another kind of surrender to a different kind of problem
0: and so 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 how did you how did you ask for help and how did you
1: surrender at this point because I think this is where this whole new chapter of your life started mm-hmm. So the first thing I did is I asked Julie to help me because my wife, you know she she wasn't 100 percent plant-based at the time but she's super healthy and always reading spiritual books and like trying to better herself and you know that was always was her that a trip. problem
0: when you were first kind of getting together And i'm sorry to interrupt no it's good kind well of, was that a problem when you were first starting to get together and you kind of had differing beliefs but maybe there must have been some values that were overlapping for you to be kind of attracted and willing to get married and and so on
1: yeah we're very different but i was attracted to that aspect of her of her character i mean we met in a yoga class like i when i got out of rehab i started going to yoga i needed to like meet new friends and have a new community and and she was part of that community that's where we met so you know in that context you know i'm obviously attracted or drawn to people that are trying to expand themselves in certain ways and this was yoga in 1998 so it's a little bit different than it is now. Like I was one of the only guys in the class, and in
0: LA, and so which <clears throat> yeah, kind of a uh, the forefront of every possible belief system. Yeah, it was a thing.
1: It, you know, I was like, this is where this is where you go to meet beautiful women. You yeah. know, I, I can't go to bars anymore, so I'll go to yoga class. Um, but yeah, so so Julie, Julie was very much like interested in. All things spiritual, you know, and and was very invested in expanding her awareness and her consciousness, and was always trying new things, and and I found that to be like curious and interesting, like because it was so different than my logic-based, you know, rational approach to life. But but you know that rehab experience and sobriety was opening me up in certain ways, and and it was, and and like I felt like I wanted to explore that aspect of myself and she was somebody who was kind of further down that path and you know to this day she's somebody who challenges me on a lot of my you know beliefs and proclivities um so I relish that aspect of her although sometimes you know sometimes I'm like come on like that's too much you know like I can't go there with you and we joke about it I mean we have a healthy relationship around it but I think she was like a wild animal to me because she was coming from a different planet from what I was used to. So what you're,
0: kinda, what you're kind of saying though, it's okay to, be, to have differing belief systems, but that enough open-mindedness on both sides and enough overlap that you could kind of ride the wave when the other one is, is going in a slightly different direction.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, you know, my wife and I are very different. I think we share a core set of values around how we want to live our lives. Um, and we challenge each other. As much as she challenges me, I challenge her. And, and through that process, we're able to grow. And, and we fight and disagree all the time. You know, it's not about like never fighting. Um, but we have, a, really, we have a, a healthy toolbox for how we kind of navigate conflict. And, you know, we've been together like 19 years at this mm-hmm. point. So. So, so basically,
0: you asked her for help. Mm-hmm. She was eating healthier than you at the time. Mm-hmm. She maybe had more of kind of this notion of surrender at the time. Um, what what direction did your did your eating habits go in? I remember actually you told me something very interesting, which I remember. Um, this was like three years ago we were talking about this, because um, we were talking about your move from one type of diet uh, to a plant based diet uh, or a vegan sort mm-hmm. of diet. I, I forget which stage, which direction it was. But you said how the whatever you eat the first few weeks when you change diets is extremely difficult because whatever you were eating um, build leaves bacteria behind in your gut. And then, and it's that bacteria that has the cravings for what you were eating. So those McDonald's French fries were leaving bacteria in your gut on their way through the system. And they're still going to crave more French fries. So it's those three we- first two or three weeks after you stop eating French fries and you're going towards something more healthy, you feel incredible cravings. Like it's painful, the, the cravings you feel. And I think that's probably why most changes in diet don't, don't work
1: yeah i think that that that's actually that's actually absolutely right i mean what happens is you know your your gut flora your microbiome biome is is crucial to optimal health and uh and it's very interesting they're learning you know the studies and the science that's going into this right now is mind-blowing but they're learning so much about the impact of your gut flora the quality of your gut flora on all all manner of different aspects of health including foods that we crave so like you said if you're seeding your microbiome with the uh, microorganisms that live and thrive on lousy foods you know fatty foods sugary foods and like you're populating that ecology with that you know quote unquote like unhealthy gut flora and so what happens is that gut flora needs more of that unhealthy food to live that's what it thrives on that's what it lives on and they're figuring out that somehow there's some mechanism by which the gut flora can trigger your nervous system to send signals to your brain to crave those specific foods, which well, is
0: insane. Well, there's more serotonin in the gut than in the brain. And serotonin is totally linked to depression and of anxiety and, and all of these mm-hmm. things. So uh, it's pr- probably somewhat connected to that. Like if your serotonin is like going crazy and doesn't wanna feed your brain, then you're going to be depressed immediately right
1: yeah it's it's really amazing and and you should you should have a microbiome expert on your podcast to speak more intelligently about these matters than myself but i can speak from direct experience which is when if i'm eating lousy food then suddenly i start craving those lousy foods and when you start eating healthy foods you will have those pangs and cravings for the unhealthy food until you can kind of weather that storm, whether it's seven or 10 days or 14 days to get past it as you repopulate your uh, gut biome with a different um, kind of microorganism, the kind that, that lives and thrives on the healthy foods that you're eating. And so my experience is that now I crave healthy foods, which is crazy. Like what's your, what's your breakfast? I usually start the day with a with a with a smoothie that's mostly dark leafy greens like spinach and kale. If I'm working out that day, maybe half a beet, lots of berries—blackberries, blueberries—maybe a banana, um, and then you know some crazy superfoods and things like hemp seeds and spirulina or chlorella. And um, for breakfast, for breakfast, yeah, and I'll just drink that. Like it's super high in fiber. When you, when you drink it, dense. don't you
0: lose some of the fiber?
1: Not if you blend it. If you juice it, that extracts the fiber. So juicing and blending are different. If you blend it, all of it, all of the fiber is still in there, um, and it's very easily assimilated because essentially the blending process is kind of pre-digesting it for you. It's breaking it down so that when you um, when you drink it, it can provide you with energy relatively immediately without your body having to do a lot of work to digest the foods mm. first. If that makes any sense. Yeah.
0: So, so you start doing this. I guess you get got through obviously the seven to ten
1: day period, yeah. I mean, the first thing I did was like a seven day crazy juice fast cleanse thing, which was kind of like detox for food for me. Like, I felt like I needed to do something really crazy and severe to like, you know, wipe the like tabla rasa, wipe the slate clean and begin anew, uh, you know, with my relationship with food, much like, you know, going to rehab and get rid of the, you know, you got to detox off the drugs and alcohol before you can move forward. And so, so, so you did that, you started get eating healthier, and then
0: boom, what, what, what how did so, you change directions? Yeah,
1: so what, ha- what happened was for the next six months after that one week, sort of quote unquote, like detoxing, cleansing thing, whatever you want to call it, um, I, be- I felt amazing. After that seven-day period, I couldn't believe how good I felt. Like from feeling so terrible, so literally ju- a week before. in the
0: morning on dark leafy greens or whatever. It was. Lunch, what was the example? I mean, of? this
1: was—I would I have to remember—I can't remember specifically. I mean, it was a pretty kind of involved protocol. That wasn't—it wasn't a starvation thing, but it was essentially fruit and vegetable juices and some broths. But progressively uh, weaning yourself off food, a couple of days with no solid food whatsoever, and then kind of easing your way back into it but I'd never gone on a single day in my entire life without eating solid food. So this was like uncharted territory for me. And there were a couple of days where I felt terrible and had no energy and was like lying on a couch. Were you able to go into work? Um, there were two days where I didn't work at all. The third day, the fog started to lift a little bit. Um, fourth and fifth day started to feel really good. By the seventh day, I felt incredible. Yeah, and I was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know the science behind this whatsoever. I'm not sure I buy into this idea of detoxing. Like what exactly am I detoxing off? What are these toxins that are being removed? Like it didn't matter. Like it goes back to kind of that surrender thing. Like I just needed to do something different and stop asking questions. And so I just embarked on this experiment. All I know is that on that seventh day, I felt incredible. And then I wanted to find a way to eat that would allow me to feel that good all the time and then i went and tried a whole bunch of different things um, without very much success before finally settling on attempting a 100 percent plant-based diet which was like the last thing that i the thing that i hadn't tried because it just seemed so crazy and restrictive like i didn't i was not like and difficult yeah it seemed like well that's like what's left to eat right like it sounds terrible But I tried all these other things and I wasn't having much success. And I thought, well, this is the one thing I haven't tried yet. And I didn't expect it to be any different. Like I didn't have high expectations that that I would feel any different or. What's the difference between plant-based diet and a vegan diet? Plant-based diet generally uh, refers only to nutrition. You're eating only plants, nothing with a face, nothing with a mother, plant foods. it typically gets extrapolated into meaning uh, something called a whole food plant-based diet, which means plant foods and no processed foods, like not a lot of, you know, like Oreos and chips and things like that. But plant-based refers specifically to food, whereas vegan is more of a um, advocacy or a political point of view that is applicable to your perspective on the treatment of animals um, how animal products are used in everything from you know clothing to consumer products and the like. So vegan is more of an all-encompassing mm, perspective that. that has more of a political um, component to it. but the food wise it's kind of similar. Similar yeah uh, plant-based, yeah. plant-based yeah. usually means like eating healthy plants whereas vegan you, you know if you're if you're somebody who's, who's an animal rights activist, and is eschewing animal products, but don't care about health, and you're eating Oreos and potato chips all day long. Like, I guess that's plant-based, but that's not really, plant-based is I'm more considered vegan, to be man. like healthy. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're almost vegan. Okay, good.
0: Um, uh, my my daughter has become very uh, plant-based and I think vegan.
1: What what motivated her?
0: YouTube videos. Yeah. So there's a lot of young um, YouTubers. She always wanted to eat healthy and, I think so she would search for that on YouTube and then there's a lot of youtubers who are essentially plant-based or healthy eating Mm -hmm. and have videos every day describing what it means to them and and she kind of follows that that's cool that's exciting are you supportive oh yeah very much so so whenever she comes into town depending on where I am living in town she maps out all the vegan and plant-based restaurants and we have to
1: try every single one of them Uh while she's in town well there's so many here in New York it's so easy to do it here
0: yeah so a lot in L.A. too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, more in L.A., I think better ones in L.A.
1: than in New York. Yeah, but L.A., like, they're spread out. Like, yeah. here, they're just they're everywhere you go. I don't know. I love coming here. It's so easy. What's, to, like,
0: like, last time you were here, you, me, and Julie, your wife, we ate at Pure Foods and Wine, which no longer mm-hmm, exists. I what, know. what do you like in New York now?
1: Uh, let's see. The place that I haven't been to yet that I want to go to tomorrow is Orchard Grocer. They have like amazing bagels, plant-based down on Orchard Street. Where's that? Lower East Side? Yeah, yeah. Have you been to Um, Nick's? I haven't been there, no. Oh, it's so good. Nick's, where's that? It's on
0: um, University Avenue, Union Square. It's like 12th and University Avenue. Oh, really? That's like my favorite restaurant in town. I'm gonna
1: try that out. I usually go to to uh, peace food, which is right there as well. Ah, so I'm
0: so I'm on the Upper West Side now, and I'm and there's a peace food there, which uh-huh. my daughter just took me to the other day, and it was excellent. Yeah, it's good, right? Yeah,
1: and you're near you're probably near Candle also. Candle yeah, we Cafe. went to Candle the day after, right? And it was excellent. Yeah, it's good. There's ton. There's so many good places. Beyond Sushi, plant based sushi here in New York. Everywhere you go. Yeah, I've been to Beyond Sushi. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's more like uh, not quite Midtown, but in the 20s, I think. I think I've like, ordered there. They have, a, there. Cou- they
1: have mm-hmm. a couple of them around
0: town yeah yeah we were gonna order it was a little too far for us the last time my daughter was in town because i i live in different places yeah i know so (laughs) we're
1: gonna talk about that on
0: my podcast so so uh you start eating this way and then my question the last time which i can ask the same thing is i notice for myself when i'm eating healthy sometimes it's hard for me to keep my energy level up uh because i'm not doing it right somehow Hmm. i think i'm either eating too little or I'm missing some
1: nutrient. I don't know what the story is. Well, in order to answer that, I'd have to really look at what it is you're eating. Um, but I think a common mistake that a lot of people make when they go plant-based and just to you know, kind of, we skipped over the part, like when I did adopt a plant-based diet, like I had that experience of, of feeling amazing like I did on that seventh day of the juice cleanse. And that was kind of an epiphany moment that got me invested in exploring how to do this right. And I've been plant-based now for 11 years. Um, And it's been incredible and I love everything about it. Um, But I get that question a lot from people. And I think there's a misconception, like if you're plant-based, like, oh, you're just eating salad all the time, or you're eating like, you know, you're kind of grazing like a small animal or something like that, chewing grass out of the yard. And that's not what my diet looks like. Uh, And so I think a lot of people are not getting enough calories. They're like, I'm eating healthy, I had a salad. Well, it's like, I train 20, 25 hours a week. Like I eat a ton of food and I need a lot of food. And if I don't eat enough food, I'm gonna feel weak also. So I think it's less likely that it has something to do with you missing out on nutrients. If anything, if you're eating plant-based foods close to their natural state, you're probably getting a higher, more concentrated dose of nutrients um, than you are perhaps lacking in anything.
0: Yeah, I think, I think my problem is I'm probably not eating enough. So I'll have a day like today where I did a podcast in the morning, I'm gonna do a podcast with you, I have an event later. So ultimately today I'm gonna eat two meals instead of three. Mm-hmm. And my breakfast is always kind of small. And then my dinner will be a little bigger, but not that much bigger because I don't like to eat too much before I sleep. So I just won't eat enough food to get me through the day.
1: Right, so it's, and if you were to go get a cheeseburger though, that would be like a ton of calories and it would sit in your stomach and yeah, you feel awful. Sick. Yeah, you feel terrible. So I can't,
0: I'm, I'm in this weird state just where I ha- I've been doing this for a while. So now I can't eat the normal level of calories, but I'm not getting enough calories to have
1: energy like the same level of energy through the day. Well, there's plenty of solutions to that. Um, You know, one of the things that I do when I am at home, if I make that smoothie, like I make a huge thing of it and I'll have one glass of it and I'll, I can put the rest in a thermos and take it with me and sip on it throughout the day and it keeps my energy levels really high. I also, you know, there's plenty of days where I don't really, you know, it's not like, oh, I eat three meals. I just sort of graze throughout the day. And I try to always have healthy options within arm's reach, whether that's like bananas or almonds or just you know some nuts, some healthy snacks. So I'm always kind of like eating a little bit all the time as opposed to like, okay, it's lunchtime, we're taking a break and we're gonna go sit and eat this huge meal and then I'm gonna feel tired afterwards. Yeah, but you probably
0: will also work out more than I do. So I'm still trying to find that balance. Now I live on the, Right now, the sixth floor of my building. So I'll I'll walk up the stairs instead of taking the elevator. But that's the extent of my daily workout.
1: Yeah. Well, we could work on that aspect <laughs> of your daily routine. So, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, I, I've been
0: running into this problem lately more and more.
1: Well, we could offline. We could t- you can tell me exactly what you're eating, and I can hopefully steer you in a positive direction. I uh, think it's probably very easily solved.
0: Because then you had that you you went on the diet, and then suddenly you had the energy to go out there and run. You know, ten miles or whatever. You, what was the, the first run you did after you started doing all this?
1: Um, again, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I mean, I'd been I'd been a swimmer in college, so I had a background as an athlete. And then all these years go by where I'm not physically active. Um, I go on this plant based jaunt. I'm starting to feel great again, and suddenly I had this desire to move my body once again, which was great because it was an impulse that I hadn't that hadn't visited me in a very long time. And it began very casually, James. Like, you know, I just, I went back to the pool for like the first time in forever and like went for a swim and pulled an old dusty pair of running shoes out of the closet and like went out for a one mile jog. Like it it was very low key. It wasn't like, I'm gonna be an athlete again. That was not it at all. It was just reconnecting with my body in a physical way, realizing that that brought some happiness into my life, you know, mm-hmm. that was counteracting this depressive state that I was in. And that kind of launched me into like, well, wouldn't it be great to like lose this belly fat and have good energy so I can have fun with my kids. Like that's really what it was about. But each week that went by, like I was losing the weight, like without really all that much effort. Like I just was feeling better and better and better. And I felt like I was getting stronger really quickly. Um, And then it was about three or four months in to this process where I went out for a run. And at that point, I don't think I'd run longer than six or seven miles and I had, this moment where I was like in the zone and I just felt like I could run all day. And I did, I put in like 24 miles on a trail that day, which oh was like the gosh. longest I'd ever run in my life. And believe me, I was like as flabbergasted and as amazed as you look right now. Cause I, I didn't think that I could do anything like that. And I just remember thinking either I just unlocked a crazy dormant gene that I didn't know that I had, or there's really something about this new life, these lifestyle habits that I've adopted that are putting me on a on a different trajectory. And, but I like how you don't have to know the answer to that question mm, because you do it because you did it. Yeah, I did it. Like I, I was like, well, I'm just going to continue to pull this thread, you know, and see where it goes. And I, I think what it did, and I don't know that I was consciously aware of this at the time. What it, what that little that that singular experience did for me was it helped me to reflect on the ceiling that we kind of all put on ourselves, like about what our potential is or what we're capable of, because yes, it was many months of, you know, struggling with these diet things and trying to figure it out and starting to get fit again. And, you know, if you read an article about me on the internet, it looks like it all happened overnight and that's not how it happened, but it was in a relatively compressed period of time. And I think that that, that made me think like, God, you know, it's a short period of time, like I feel so different. My body feels different. I look different. I'm, I'm doing things differently. Um, what other areas of my life am I not really looking at in the same way? Like, where where am I capping myself? Or where are there other hidden pockets of potential that I could explore? And I think that's what ultimately attracted me into these, these, doing these crazy races, because they're like a template for, exploring potential not just physically but you know mentally and emotionally because these events are so mental like they do require so much of your emotional and mental capabilities as much as physical
0: sure and you know i don't think we've ever talked about this which is you call them races and i think the impressive part always to me is that you did them (laughs) because you know after all that you had been through but did
1: you were they like races where there was a winner did you win a race Yeah, the Ultraman race is a world championship event, and there's a winner every year. Uh, It's limited to just 30, I think 35 competitors from all around the world. It's an invitation only event, Uh, and- How do you get invited? uh, I just use my lawyerly skills for the first, I can't believe they let me participate in 2008, which is the first time I did it, because I had no resume that should have legitimized my entry, but I was able to make that happen somehow. And that first year, I did, I just wanted to finish, you know? And I and I did, and I ended up doing better than I thought that I could. And I certainly better than I think anybody else thought that I could. And then the following year, 2009, I went into it thinking like, I wanna be competitive and see what I can do. And I actually was winning that race for the after the first day stage, I had a 10 minute lead on the next, on anybody else in the field. I crashed my bike on the second day, which mm took me out of podium contention and i was lucky to even finish that race but i ended up sixth in that but so and that was when i was 43 so you know i was able to be somewhat competitive in that arena for a period of time and then um yeah because that's amazing even crashing the bike and still
0: ending up six mm. uh and then you're uh, you're able to i always like this phrase processes art so you're able to kind of take the process of all this and you wrote books about your experience you documented it and that's really what kind of brought you to this kind of new,
1: completely new career.
0: Yeah, that's People exactly know right. you now as this Ultraman,
1: Ironman athlete and not as a lawyer. Right, yeah, yeah. The lawyer thing is seems like a past life at this point. And it's been great and that's exactly what it is, processes, art, you know, documenting. I'm um, trying to extract from the experiences that I've had some helpful information that could be potentially transformative for other people.
0: Well, it seems like I mean, look, just talking to you, I feel now I want to be more serious about the plant-based thing. Maybe move around a little bit more. I think it's, I think it's very important, like to move around and work your muscles and stuff, particularly as you get older and older, so that they don't get, they 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 start to atrophy so much faster. I think food. I think for the first time in my life, in the past few years, I realized, and this is gonna sound kind of stupid, that food is fuel, and mm-hmm. you can't how you how you create the fuel in your life is extremely important for your brain for your body for your emotions for for everything and so this is this and a lot of it has come from talking to you and even like this podcast here is uh uh makes me think again like it reminds me of oh yeah that's why this is
1: important to me and i think also because you're on the cusp of turning 50 you know it's really important to make sure that your habits around food and lifestyle are, you know, on the healthy end of the spectrum because stuff that we could get away with in our twenties and our thirties that start to begin to elude us in our forties become untenable in our fifties. I mean, and I that's think, where everything starts to catch up to
0: you. I think I'm roughly on the healthy end in the sense that a there's awareness B uh, I don't, I don't really do any, I don't really have any like bad habits. But I probably haven't really understood the good habits as well as mm-hmm. I should. So I try to eat healthy. Um, I don't eat anything unhealthy, let's put it that way. Uh, or, you know, in the spectrum of... Uh, I'm in the spectrum of healthy all the time, I think. And I don't really drink, I don't smoke, I don't do anything. But, you know, I am turning 50, so it's all gonna... I feel like
1: it's somehow that's like a big change. Like, I gotta really get take it more seriously. I think it is important to take it more seriously. I mean, I don't think you need a life reboot. And you're somebody, look, you're naturally thin also. So like managing your weight has probably never been an issue for you. Like, I would say in my 40s
0: though, if I continue just eating what I was eating, I was gonna start expanding. Like mm-hmm. I felt it. Right. And so I had to eat less. Yeah. But I don't know if that was the answer. I just know it worked to to maintain.
1: I think that a healthy way to think about it, to conceptualize it, is not from a place of like, I should do this. If I don't do this, bad things are gonna happen. And rather look at it like, I wanna feel good. Like I wanna have good energy. I, you yeah. know, I don't wanna be depressed. I wanna feel strong in my body because that vitality, that life force infects every aspect of your life, your relationships, your career. There's nothing that's not impacted by that, right? So it's not about like obligation, because I don't think that works as an external motivator. Um, It's about, you know, look, this is in many ways is a self-help podcast, like how can we better ourselves? Well, the first portal to all of this is food. Like, what are you putting into your body? You're not gonna put sand into your Ferrari. So why are you shoveling junk down your throat? Because it gives you a momentary, you know, good feeling that you then pay for for hours and hours and hours and potentially becomes, you know, very problematic as we age.
0: Well, How many hours a day do you sleep? Eight hours. Super important to me. Yeah, eight eight I don't hours get it. As I, the
1: one thing I have noticed as I get older, James, and I don't know if this is your experience, like it becomes like sleep becomes more difficult and challenging. Like it eludes me unless I'm very diligent about like what I need to do before I go to bed, and you know, removing the stress and all that kind of stuff. Because I'll just wake up at like four o'clock in the morning or whatever, or I'll wake up naturally after four. Four or five hours, when I know that like I can't perform the way that I want to unless I'm getting seven or eight. I mean, I definitely need the eight. It's like the eight's almost the
0: minimum, and I have been having problems getting the eight lately. My schedule's kind of changed in weird ways, and uh, I'm trying to figure out how to get the the eight. Whether it's possible to to break it up, or I need to sleep later, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I'm still I'm still figuring that because I've started doing, um, like three to six times a week, I started doing stand-up comedy. I know. And that's late at night. And it's later that, it's, it's usually I'm performing later than I would normally go to sleep and, or start winding down at least. And uh, uh, that's, that's been challenging for me. And are you able to sleep in when you're up that late? I don't like to sleep in because that's usually when I like to write. Yeah. So it's, there's been a give and take I ha- that I'm still kind of working through. I kind of have to give up something. Yeah, it's, it's tricky.
1: That's tricky. It's also like when you're when you're when your schedule's different like every day, right? So you can yeah. never get into like a pattern.
0: Yeah. So so you've been obviously you've been doing many things uh since the last time we we spoke. What's been the what's been the biggest challenges and things that have been happening? I can't even really I don't even really know. Like I was going all over your blog and Twitter. You you don't really blog as much, uh, but you podcast a lot right um and your podcast guests are always interesting you said lance armstrong on you you got in touch with me you had lance armstrong on the same day or you released that episode the same day i released the floyd landis episode so crazy they're both the twitter uh, floyd landis famously being the whistleblower on lance armstrong for the doping and uh uh you know so you always have these high performance athletes on uh what
1: have you been learning from your podcast the podcast has been amazing it's true, I, I don't blog that much anymore because all of that energy is going into the podcast, but I do try to write a nice blog post that goes with each episode mm. to try to, you know, and I know you do that as well, to try to provide a little bit of insider perspective on the guest and the conversation that goes beyond just their bio. So probably that blogging energy is has been invested in that. But you know, I'm sure you would agree, like the podcast for me has been, just an unbelievably wild, amazing ride.
0: Well, it's great because you get to have these sorts of conversations with anyone you want. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean know. I've had the most admit most people say no right. I don't know if most people say no to you. I'll, I'll ask fifty people to go on the podcast and a few will say yes and most will be they're out of the country or I only like doing it in person me too so so most people just it's just not feasibly possible. um but it's it's an amazing thing to live a life where, you can talk to all these
1: super high achievers. It's the greatest thing ever. I mean, it's almost a scam. I almost feel <laughs> guilty about it. Like, okay, I'm gonna get this person. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold them hostage and hijack them, and I get to ask them all the questions I ever wanted to know. And then you get to share that with people, and then people get to um, then take that and 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 use it to improve yeah. their lives. Like, there's no greater thing. Like, I just love everything about it, and. You know, I know you've been doing this for a while and I, I have too. I started in 2012 and when I started it, it, it wasn't cool to have a podcast back then and I didn't know how long I would do it and it just continues to grow and build and I, I, I just get more enthusiastic and excited about it. It's cool that the space you know, around this has grown so much and now there are so many new people who are um, kind of learning about you know the wonderful world of podcasting for the very first time.
0: Have you debated uh, mixing up the format a little bit? So. You and I both do like classic and we do well uh, Mm -hmm. with it. We do classic interview style podcasts, which I enjoy doing because then we can have these, I almost call it conversation style rather than interview style. I don't like the straight interview. I like it when it's more like you and I know each other. We have a a history. We can have a conversation. Uh, I prefer those, but I think there's also the type of podcast where the production quality is a little bit higher and it's more storytelling and you're Mm -hmm. going out in the field and doing something. And that's part of the podcast, but that's, That's too difficult. Yeah, I mean that's that's a lot lot
1: of work. Like those those Gimlet and NPR shows, like they it takes sometimes it takes months and months for them to to make six episodes to do that. And that's a very different thing. Like that's that's not a skill that I have. But I have thought about playing with the format a little bit. I mean, one thing that I that I started doing maybe this past year is putting up additional episodes which are like q a's or talks that i give when i travel and just the audio from those uh you know so every week i'll do a long form conversation like you do and then every other week i'll put up some other kind of interesting audio that i have like in the you know just from the from from the folders from the past like oh i was in like i, I just put one up i was in ireland we did an event and a q a and just put that audio up you know so that's a little tweak on the formula, but I, you know, I'd be interested in like what other ways there are to play with this in a I, way I, that
0: are. I have an idea
1: for you. Yeah, what's that? You should totally do Facebook Lives. And I've done them once do in a Q&A while with them. Yeah, and then put that and then put that audio up as a podcast as well. No,
0: I don't even think you, I think it's just a separate thing. Like you just you announce on Twitter, hey, in a half hour or in ten minutes, I'm going to do a Facebook Live for thirty to sixty minutes ask any questions you have, or, or I'll tell a story about what's been happening with me, and, or give some tips about something, and, or you ask questions that people have asked you on, in emails, you know, you find some way to get content, and you do those Facebook Lives, they build up. You'll be getting 10, 20,000 views a video or more, and, you know, that's not the same as a, a podcast, but then people see you, and it's just a different way to communicate with the fans, mm-hmm. so it's not, it, it it's not, adding to your podcast but it's complimenting and i think it's just another another outlet which doesn't
1: really take that much extra energy i have done that from time to time i just haven't done it with any kind of structured regularity same with me have you, so you've been doing that as well uh,
0: i i thought i was gonna do it every day
1: and i did it two days in a row and then i got busy the third
0: day and i haven't done it since yeah so maybe i did it once since then um when aj jacobs had a book out we, we did one but uh, uh, I, I'd like to do more of those. I think video
1: is, is important. Well, I have dipped my toe into video and we started filming the podcasts. And so I think I have the last five or six of them are all on video on my YouTube channel. And that's been an interesting exploration or experiment. Um, you know, another format you can do is playing with where you're playing with story is take
0: like six post-50 people, age 50 people, and on your podcast, maybe one um, you kind of do a, a, like a mini series within your podcast. So one of your episodes on, on the weeks that you do too is you, you, you talk to one to six of these guys or women and go over what they've been doing and improve it. And then we follow their story and you kind of coaching them in their story as they, you know, you call it like Iron 50 or old, mm-hmm. the Ultra 50 series. You're going to get them to be their, their max potential.
1: That's a really good idea. You're not the first person to suggest that, so that's definitely something that I think is worth exploring, either in podcast format or perhaps even in documentary format, or
0: both. Yeah,
1: right. Because that's something you could play with play with both, or or it's a way you could pitch the documentary format.
0: Yeah, um, is by starting in the podcast format with with some video. So it's a really good
1: idea. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to continually uh evolve you know and and that's why i started getting into video i noticed a lot of other people were doing it and you know, i don't know who's gonna sit and watch a two-hour podcast like on youtube but certain people do it and then you can chop that video up and you know repurpose it across all the other channels and platforms take the best little chunks out of it with short format stuff and
0: i think people also podcast people listen to on their commutes and in the gym and maybe at their desk a little bit so i don't necessarily think the video of a podcast is the most popular format for it, but it's it's interesting to do. And that's why I say the Facebook Live or other things are almost right. separate but complementary. Right. Um or like a documentary is like complementary and it adds to it all, but it's it's part of an empire rather than like just adding dimensionality to the the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So but um what I want to know is what first off, what are what's what's Julie's favorite cookbook, so I could see what food to, to eat.
1: What's her favorite cookbook? Yeah. Well, probably her own cookbook. Yeah. The which, Plant Power Way, which we which we've talked about before. What's the That's name of right. it? Right. Uh, the Plant Power Way. Plant Power Way. And then she just this past year released a new one called This Cheese Is Nuts. It's a nut based cheese uh, cookbook, which is amazing. She figured out how to make unbelievably delicious cheese with nuts and seeds without any oh. dairy and like like blue cheese camembert mozzarella like insane like i can't I, i'm like i don't know how you do this but it's unbelievable how good this stuff tastes and how close it tastes to like what you'd expect it to taste do, like Do you
0: know um do you know bill glazer yes so so last time i was in la i visited bill and he had a chef uh and the chef made a quote-unquote big mac with cheese uh-huh. he made um pasta Bacon and vanilla ice cream, and so there was. It was a, everything tasted exactly like a Big Mac. Tastes exactly like a bowl of pasta. Tastes exactly like ice cream. Tastes exactly like bacon, hundred percent. And it was all plant based, and there was no dairy.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was just great. It's a crazy world out there, James. I mean, I think it's really interesting what's happening in the food space right now. Um, it's it's uh, inarguable that our current Methodologies for producing food to feed the planet are unsustainable and are wreaking all kinds of environmental havoc on the planet. And That's it's why a,
0: Eric Schmidt, you know, the yeah, chairman of Google, says the, the number one trend. technology
1: is plant-based food technology. Yes, because we need to innovate new ways, more sustainable ways, um, more compassionate ways to provide enough food to feed everybody as we head towards 10 billion people on the planet. Well, how are we going to do that? Factory farming is just decimating our rainforests and it's, you know, polluting our water table and acidifying our oceans and leading to mass species extinction. Like you could just go on and on forever about like the deleterious impact of our current system of, of animal agriculture. And so now we're seeing uh, the advent of <clears throat> not just plant-based meat and dairy companies like Hampton Creek and um, Beyond Meat, and the Impossible Burger, but now we have Uma Valetti at Memphis Meats, who's figuring out how to take cells out of a live animal and essentially cultivate them in this brewing process that produces meat without a sentient animal, which is mm. insane. Like that's as crazy as, as flying that. cars. Yeah, uh, it's like um, Uma Valetti's. I think he's on the cover of it's either Inc. or Fortune. Memphis month. Meats it's called Memphis Meats. Um, unbelievable, like what this company is doing. Hampton Creek is also moving in that direction of, of of developing. It's called lab cultured meat. There's a couple interesting books coming out about this soon as well. So that's a space that I think is going to explode. And it's as bizarre as it is, like the idea that we we could we could have meat without the animal. You know, like this is the crazy future that we're that we're inching ourselves towards. Um, at the same time, you go to the, any grocery store and suddenly you know, there was that one weird you know, soy milk or almond milk, and now like half the, the dairy um, section is plant-based milks. You know, that was not the case even a couple of years ago. So I think we're seeing technologists, we're seeing the financial communities, the venture capitalists, even the the standard
0: meat companies like Tyson Foods or one or General I yeah. forget which one set aside two hundred million dollars to Campbell for a VC fund to invest in
1: plant based yeah. companies. I believe that was Campbell. Like they're making a really solid conscious effort to incubate companies in this space. You know, a lot of them will acquire them, but they're also trying to create um, food labels under their banner. Like it's it's um, it's clear that this is where we're going and the smarter companies and investors out there are paying very close attention to this space. And I think it's super exciting.
0: So look, Rich, thanks. Once again, coming on the podcast, uh, it's always, it's always a super pleasure. Uh, I learned so much. I feel like it changes my life. Every single time you come on, I highly recommend your podcast. Uh, the Rich Roll Podcast. I don't know. Do you have any other name
1: for it? I call it the Rich, Rich Roll podcast. podcast. That's what it's called. In your memoir, um, Finding Ultra. Finding Ultra. Yeah, second edition is coming out in April. What's the difference in the second edition? I, I wrote a whole new chapter. It's about 30% different. Rewrote the whole book, updated all the appendices, much, much improved. Oh, so great. I'm excited about I can't that. I'd like to read that.
0: Yeah. So, well, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, James. Hey, I am so glad you listened to this episode. I myself really enjoyed it. It's a special episode. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesalditchard.com podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Every day, I also share my best and most controversial ideas. You won't get this stuff anywhere else. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.